Well, good morning. It's good to be with y'all. My name is Jared Clary, and I'm one of the pastors here over Discipleship and Missions, and it's a joy to be with you and to uh, open up God's Word this morning. Um, if you've got your Bible, then we're in 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And what we're going to see here is that there are real consequences of following after our own heart. As a kid, we lived out in the country. We had a gravel driveway, and it kind of sloped about like that. And my cousins lived down the road from us, and so I saw them one day, and I decided I would run to meet them. And my parents had always told us, like, be careful, running down the gravel. And I was somewhere midway to three-quarters of the way down that gravel driveway, and I guess a rock slipped, or my foot faltered, and I face-planted into that gravel. Came up with a busted lip and a scar to this day. There were real consequences to not listening or heeding the advice of my parents to not run on the gravel. Real consequences. Got it today. Three stitches later, traumatic experience, being held down in the gurney for them to sew up my lip, right? It's a small reality, but what we're going to see in the text today is that there's big consequences. There's huge consequences to following after your own heart rather than following after God's heart. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would open our eyes and ears to hear his word this morning. Lord, we come to you needy and desperate for you to move in our midst. God, we don't want to be the same. We want to look more like you. We want to fall deeper in love with who you are. Lord, we want to know your your character and your compassion and your love more fully. We want to know your sovereignty and your control that we might trust you more willingly. And God, we just ask that through the reading of your word this morning, Lord, that you would change us. That our hearts would be more like you Lord, that we would have hearts that long after the things which you long after. That we would trust and obey you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the way we're going to break down our text this morning is is I want to show you three scenes that we're going to walk through. And so we see the first scene right here in verse 11. And we're going to go all the way through 21. But this first scene is we've got problems in the priesthood. There are problems in the priesthood. Look at verse 11. It says, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. That's important. I, I know we're picking up from last week, but it's important to recognize that the boy, right? We don't get his name right here. He's just the boy. Samuel. He's continuing to minister to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. There's going to be a small thread that's going to run through this whole passage that's going to link Samuel 
all the way through. And so we're going to pick it up each time and we'll just pick it up. It's a little thread that keeps running through, but the writer is doing this intentionally to remind us Samuel is still continuing. Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. What a sentence, right? A couple sentences there. Worthless men, they did not know the Lord. Now, what we're about to do is all of a sudden we've got problems. Eli is the high priest. His sons are worthless. His sons, the sons of the high priest, do not know the Lord. Yikes. This is problematic. Verse 13. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come. And while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot or whatever you wanted to cook with. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This was what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now pause. So we've got this opening statement They're worthless men. They don't know the Lord. And now we're going to start to heap and pile accusations against them. So here's the first one. And it's hard to pick up because we don't understand this context. But what was happening here is the people would bring their sacrifice to offer. And what was happening was these servants of the priests at the instruction of the sons, Eli, Eli's sons, Phineas and Hopni, they would take this fork, which was supposed to be used to keep the, the sacrifice in the fire to offer to the Lord. They would take this fork, and when the people had offered their sacrifice, and then they were going to eat the meat, the priest servants would come, and they would stick the fork in there, and they would take the sacrifice from the people of God. So instead of serving the people, what these priests and servants and the sons of the priests are doing is now they're taking from the people of God. So we've got, they're worthless, they don't know the Lord, they're taking from the people that they're supposed to be serving. Verse 15, moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and they would say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. So we're heaping another pile on. Now they're coming to the people who are going to offer these sacrifices and they're saying, hey, we don't want to wait until it's been offered to the Lord first. Give us the raw meat before the Lord. So they're now not just taking from the people of God, they're now taking from God. Verse 16. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. So now we're heaping another layer on top of that, that even when the people that they're supposed to be serving are saying, hey, uh, maybe this isn't a good idea to take from God. Maybe we should let God have his part first. Let's, let us burn the fat. Then you can have as much as you want. They're like, no, 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 no. It's ours. 
we'll take it by force if we have to. It's like the big bully on the you know, lunch, lunchroom. It's like, give it to me. It's like, uh, can I at least eat my ham sandwich? No, hand it over, right? Like they're bullies. They're bullying the people of God, but they're even more, they're stealing from the hand of the Lord. Verse 17. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. With contempt. Like they're not just stealing from the Lord. They're treating the offering that the people are wanting to give with contempt. Like such dumb people giving the best cuts to the Lord. It tastes so much better if you don't burn all the stuff off first. They've got contempt. It kind of harkens us forward to this idea of when the woman breaks the alabaster jar and anoints Jesus' feet. The people looked and were like, why are you wasting that? Why are you wasting something that's so good or valuable? They're looking with contempt upon what the people were wanting to offer to the Lord. Showing that they have no regard for the Lord. This is the picture of the sons of the high priest. We got problems in the priesthood. Verse 18 switches gears on us just a little bit. And it says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Pick up that little thread. A boy clothed in a linen ephod. Now, this is really interesting right here because the ephod was a priestly garment. And so we've got this this sinking of the high priest and his sons, and we've got this raising of Samuel, this boy who's been dedicated to the Lord, who's ministering to the Lord in the presence of the priest. And now, verse 18, he's wearing priestly garments, sinking of one and arising of the other. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked for the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Samuel continues to rise. We see God pour out his blessing. God is still working. God is still at work, even in the midst of a crooked and perverse people. Can I just take an aside real quick? If you look around or you watch the news or you look at social media, there's a lot of bad stuff happening. There's fights and division and stuff everywhere. But please do not give up hope. The Lord is still at work. Even in the midst of crooked and perversion, in the temple of God, God is still moving. He's still at work. His plans are not thwarted. He's still at work. Don't give up hope. Even in the midst of this, Hannah and Elkanah have children. What a joy. What a blessing. 
And yet, the priesthood is in shambles. Scene two, we get verse 22 through 26. And we see a a half-hearted rebuke. This is half-hearted. Now, as I was studying this, it's kind of hard to see just from this text that it's half-hearted. But as you put together the, the texts that follow, and then ultimately in a couple weeks when we get to see where the consequences are all played out, then, then we see that, that really this rebuke is, is at best half-hearted. So let's see verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing that his sons were doing what his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, again, we're getting another layer piled on to these wicked, worthless men. But what we see here is that Eli, he's very old. This has gone on for a long time and he keeps hearing. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel. This isn't a first-time offense. This is a reputation that they have. This is problematic. But we've got Eli, the high priest. He's going to make it right. No. Verse 23. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear of the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Like, there's not good rumors happening. This is bad news. I'm not hearing good stuff. All I'm hearing is the negative about you. All I'm hearing is about the bad stuff that you've been doing. And so he begins to rebuke them. Why do you do such things? But that question is rather interesting because what are the things that they've been doing? They've been stealing food and feasting for themselves. Now we're going to find out that Eli has been partaking of that feast with his sons. He's been benefiting from their shenanigans. Verse 29, if you skip over real quick, then we see the Lord speaking right here. And he says, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel? He's been fattening himself off of the best, which should have been going to the Lord. And yet he's been chasing after his own heart indulging, but now because of the murmurings, because of the rumors, he's now had his hand forced. Eli, you have to address this mess that's going on with your sons. And so he says, why do you guys do such things? It's not good. Come on, let's run a little better PR campaign. Doesn't matter what you do as long as the word's not spreading about it. But then look where he goes next, verse 25. He asked them this question. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against, another, against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, what's going on here? Well, what he's talking about is we understand this in the judicial system, or we understand this in parenting. If one of my kids is fighting with one of my other kids, who's going to come and mediate between them? 
dad, mom, a higher authority, right? The higher authority steps in and goes, okay, let me hear this. Let me hear this. Okay. Let, let's bring about restoration. It's the judicial system, right? Two people have an offense against each other. What does the judge come in and say, you did this wrong. You have to do this to make it right. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? What higher authority are you going to appeal to? We've already seen that the Lord is sovereign and in control. If you offend a holy, infinite God, then you have a holy, infinite offense. And who are you going to appeal to? There is none. Now, this is a sad place to sit. Because the scripture lays out that all of us, every one of us, has stood in offense against a holy, infinite God. That each of us has gone our own way. That each of us has chased after our own heart and what we want and what we desire rather than what the Lord does. That each of us, just like these sons, have stolen from the Lord and said, no, I want it for myself, my time, my money, my dreams, my passions, my energy. It's mine. God, I'll give you what's left. And so each one of us sits in this place of having to answer the question, who can intercede for him who has offended a holy God? The passage goes on and it shows the response of these sons. And it says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. They wouldn't change. They wouldn't do anything different. They wouldn't repent. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. That their actions were leading to a consequence in which they had no one to intercede for them. And so God is just in his dealings. And in the midst of this dark deep valley, we get verse 26. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. The priesthood is sinking. There's a half-hearted rebuke, but the sons don't listen probably because they're like, Dad, you've been getting fat off of the food that we've been bringing you. You don't really want us to change. And it keeps sinking And yet, Samuel's rising. This verse ought to hearken, if you're a good Bible reader, you forward to another one whom it was said about that he grew in favor with God and with man. Jesus. 
So that scene closes out with this this gloom of the priesthood and yet a little light in Samuel who's continuing, who's remaining in the midst of this wickedness. He's remaining and yet he's even growing in favor with God. Scene three, we see these consequences to their actions and we see that there is a better priest. Verse 27 says this, and there came a man of God to Eli and he said to him, now this, don't miss the irony of this. Eli, the high priest who is supposed to be the mediator for the people of God has to have a man of God come to him and tell him what the Lord's saying. Oh man, the priesthood has sunk so low. And he says this, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear the ephod before me? God's beginning to ask these rhetorical questions to Eli. Eli, Haven't you seen my grace towards you and your family that I took you out of the land of Egypt, that I pulled your family, Aaron, and I set him up to be my priest, to wear the ephod? I gave to the house of your fathers all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Eli, look, I gave so much to you, but you just wanted your own. You just wanted more. Does it remind you of maybe a little bit of the garden? You can eat from any of the trees. Did I not give you all the fruit of the trees? And yet there was this one. But you longed after that. Your heart chased after that. Verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, here's the consequences. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your fathers should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Now, what's going on there? Well, God is, is hearkening back to the promise that he made under this Mosaic covenant that if you walk in his path, he will bless you. If you walk outside of his path, he will curse. This Mosaic covenant, if you keep the law, there's blessing. If you break the law, there's curse. This is, this is under this covenant that the people of God are in. And they're trying to keep the law, but they can't because their hearts are bad. Their hearts keep longing after things which are apart from the person of God. And so now God is dealing out the consequences of their actions because they have longed after things that were apart from God, because they have broken the covenant, then God is going to put them out. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, 
You will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart and all the descendants. Ugh. And this shall come upon your two sons. Hopni and Phinehas shall, go, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Man. You think if Eli would have known the consequences of sin, he would have continued to walk down that path? See, sin is a liar. It promises more than it delivers. And it will always sell you short. It will promise joy and satisfaction. And it will deliver pain and shame. Sin is a liar. But yet its consequences are real. See, the book of Proverbs opens up and it says, here's two paths. There's a path that leads to death and there's a path that leads to life. Which path do you want to be on? The one that leads to death? No. You want to be on the path that leads to life. You can't walk the path of death and not get the consequences that it delivers. And that's the reality that we see here is that you can't walk in opposition to God and chase after your own heart and not get the consequences and the pain that sin delivers. Who will intercede for the one who has an offense against a holy God? There is no hope. Who's going to intercede? You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't do more good than you've done bad. There's no hope. The only one left is left to weep their eyes out with grief. But verse 35, God has not abandoned his people and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. What? Another priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Wait, so there is hope? There's a priest coming? There's a priest who can go in and out forever? You see, God casts our eyes forward. That while the midst of this Levitical priesthood is sinking, all hope is not lost. Because God made a promise 
that he was going to redeem and restore a people and a place for his purpose. And so hope is not lost because God himself is at work. If you want to flip forward to Hebrews chapter 7, we get a glimpse of this priest. The whole chapter is incredible. It's about how Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron, because Aaron's line has been pummeled. Aaron's line has has seen sin. And yet then we get to Hebrews 7 and we see that Jesus is of a, a different priestly order. Look at verse 23. It says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood preeminently because he continues forever. Verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is our only hope before a holy God that we have offended? It's that we have a high priest who can make intercession for us, who is God himself, who took on flesh, And took on the wrath of God for the punishment of our sin. The consequences which we deserve. And he bore them in his body on the cross. That anyone who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart. Anyone who draws near to him. He is able to save to the uttermost. Praise God. We were hopeless and destitute for destruction, and yet God has made a way. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you may be saved. It is only through Jesus that we can be saved, because he is the only one who can appeal to God the Father on our behalf, because he lived it perfectly. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's our Jesus. That's our Savior. That he has made a way for us. Praise God. So we get to a text like this in Samuel, and and how do we begin to apply it? Well, hopefully the Lord's stirring in your heart some things. But I want to pull out three applications for us. And and we don't want to make this text all about us. But there's some important lessons that we see in here about the character of God and who he is and what he's doing that call us forward, that call us to action. And so the first application that I want to point out for you is this, that you should repent while there's still time. If you're hearing this message, there's time. And the time is now. 
You don't know what tomorrow brings. You don't know what this afternoon brings. But there's time now for you to repent. Don't be like Hopney and Phineas, who would not listen. Hear the voice of God. Hear God calling out to you and saying, Repent, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You don't clean yourself up first, you just come while there's still time. The second application is that you remain faithful where God has you. I love tracking Samuel through this story because in the midst of this perverseness, in the midst of these shambles and shenanigans, Samuel just remains faithful. I think a lot of times we in the church think that Christianity is going to be a whole bunch of these like make or break moments where it's like we're going to stake our flag. But you know what Christianity is a lot of? Daily remaining faithful. Just continuing in the place where God has you. Continuing to trust and obey. It's the small things. It's choosing to trust God rather than sin. It's choosing to obey rather than to disobey. It's choosing to remain where God has you. Verse 11, it says that Samuel ministered to the Lord. Verse 18, it says that Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Verse 21, it says that Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, it says that Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. And then in chapter 3, 1, it says, Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord. He just continued to be faithful. Nothing flashy, just faithful. Remain faithful where God has you. The third thing that we see as far as application is that we need to rejoice that we have a faithful high priest. I would love for you to sit in the sadness and sorrow of verse 25 and ponder that question this week. Who can intercede? Who can intercede? Thanks be to God who has made a way for us. Rejoice that God has raised up for himself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in his heart and mind. Oh, sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. Not because of us did you act, but because of your great name. God, that you would save sinners. 
Lord, you're so gracious and merciful. God, we pray that this week, Lord, that you might stir our affections more for how you have lavished your love upon us by being our priest who daily makes intercession for us, who clothes us in righteousness and calls us saints. We rejoice in our faithful high priest that you have made a way, God. Would you help us to live that out in such a way that this world would see you, in such a way that our neighbors and our friends and our family members and our children would be drawn to the glory of our high priest who took on our sin and shame and clothed us in his righteousness. We ask it in Jesus' name.